I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Citizen Nashville. We've talked a lot here at WPLN News about how to serve you, our communities better. So a few times a month, we're bringing you a special hour we're calling Citizen Nashville. Our goal is to answer your questions and hold our officials accountable. Today, we're talking about abortion rights and access. It's been just over a week since word leaked that the Supreme Court is moving to strike down Roe versus Wade, which currently guarantees abortion rights at the federal level. The news sent shockwaves across the nation, spurring protests and rallies all over the country, including here in Nashville. The leak has also spurred Congress. Democrats proposed a bill that would codify the right to an abortion in federal law, even though they lack the votes to overcome a Republican filibuster. Tennessee is one of 22 states that would automatically ban abortions if Roe is overturned. It would not happen immediately. But even so, all of this has created panic and despair and given rise to questions about what the future will look like for people seeking access to abortion. Becca Andrews is a Tennessee native who covers reproductive justice for Mother Jones, and she joins me now. Becca, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to have you with us. So it's been quite a week for your beat. Lord. (laughs) Yes, it has. So tell me, how did you feel when Politico released the Supreme Court's draft decision? I mean, you you know what it feels like as a journalist to get something like that. You know, I I got a text from a friend and immediately I'm technically on book leave from Mother Jones right now. But even so, I just like jumped online and was like, okay, I'm on it. I'm working on it. Blogged it, started reading the opinion. Um, So I think... In some ways, it was really nice to have like the breaking news adrenaline kind of take over. Mm-hmm. But then later, I think I, I think I went into shock a little bit. I think it was kind of like, you know, we totally expected this, this to happen, and and knew it was coming. And I've certainly been like talking about the end of Roe for most of my career. Um, but it's another thing to see it in writing in like a draft Supreme Court opinion like that. You've been covering this beat for a while. Mm-hmm. Did you expect something like this to happen? Yes, but I didn't expect it to happen in like a leaked draft form. I mm. mean, li- literally that day I was talking to my editor and I was like, we have until the end of June when the Supreme Court will probably release the opinion. They're probably going to put it off as long as they can. Um, I was not prepared for a leak like that. I don't think any of us were. Did anything about the leak surprise you? Yes. Uh, the language and the opinion really surprised me. Um the way that it was just sort of blatantly anti-abortion and giving a lot of um, credibility to this idea of, of fetal life and, and right-to-life language um, really, really surprised me. I've never seen anything like that before come out of the court. What type of concerns does that give you? I mean, the obvious one, like the fall of Roe, the the idea that, that lawmakers are going to start prioritizing uh, the potential life of an embryo of a fetus over the pregnant person. Um, and I, I also fear that we're going to see a lot of criminalization of pregnancy. I fear that we're going to see a lot of pregnant people um, monitored. I fear that we're going to start seeing miscarriages examined. Uh, the idea of law enforcement getting involved in something as intimate as pregnancy and reproduction is horrifying. The laws here in Tennessee give us a pretty clear understanding of where the state government stands on abortion rights. They absolutely do. You grew up here. 
Tell me about how that experience really shaped your ideas on reproductive rights. Mm. So I grew up in rural West Tennessee. I grew up in Crockett County. Uh, it's maybe like an hour and a half out of Memphis. Um, you know, I, I grew up conservative and evangelical. Um, so my interest in reproductive justice really started when I started examining that upbringing and examining particularly the ways that um, I was supposed to act as a woman and how my sexuality was policed, um, the ways that I was sort of me and all of the other women that I grew up with were kept in the dark about our bodies and how they worked and um, were told that our sexuality was inherently evil. Um, mm. So I, my first magazine feature for Mother Jones actually was examining the absence education in the state. It was around the time the gateway sexual activity bill um, passed the legislature. And I went back and I embedded with uh, the folks who taught me sex education in high school. Um, and then from there, it just made sense to sort of keep going into reproductive justice work and and thinking about the ways that, um, you know, when you start with this cultural, cultural idea of women's bodies as something that needs to be policed and controlled, of course, that's going to trickle down to health care and abortion rights. So it sort of snowballed from there. So we're looking at the removal of nearly 50 years of precedent mm -hmm. in this draft opinion, if it becomes final judgment from the Supreme Court. Give us a quick timeline of how we got here. <laughs> <laughs> I know we only have an um, hour, but the best okay. you can. So the big turning point, I would say, is in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which I think I want to say was the decision in 1993. Um, basically what that decision did was it allowed states to restrict abortion, um, through somewhere in the, in the second trimester or on this like fuzzy standard that is known as fetal viability. Fetal viability is the idea that, that a fetus can survive on its own outside of a pregnant person's womb. Uh, so the conservative states really jumped on that. And ever since they've been sort of locked into this rat race of who can, who can pass the most restrictive restriction mm. <laughs> and who can get that kicked up to the Supreme Court in order to become, you know, this case. So the Mississippi case, Mississippi wins, sort of. It's also tied with Texas, if you ask me, um, to to overturn Roe and to overturn abortion rights. Um, so, you know, this has been a really long time coming. Uh, you have a lot of conservative legislatures that are just zeroed in on abortion access and have been for a long time. Uh, I would also say the the anti-abortion movement is very well organized. Uh, they're well, very well funded. They really know what they're doing. Um, it's not an accident that this has happened in under a century. Um, so those are sort of the, the broad strokes, I would say. Is this the consequences of past elections playing out years later? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You can't talk about this without talking about the decline of voting rights and gerrymandering and all of that. This is 100% consequential of that. Even though Roe is the law of the land, dozens of states have created laws and regulations that severely restrict access to abortions. It's not as if anyone could just get up and get an abortion anytime they want or right. need. You know, so talk to me about, like, these access restrictions here in Tennessee. Mm. So here in Tennessee and in the South— uh, the states are, are what I would call post-Roe states. So I would say that in Tennessee, we've been living in a post-Roe reality for quite some time. 
you know, we have waiting periods. So people who are traveling have to come in for an initial appointment where they have to listen to um, state mandated counseling, which is often misinformation about abortion. It's it's really meant to dissuade folks from getting abortion care. Um, you have the admitting privileges requirements um, that require um, doctors to have admitting privileges at local hospitals, even though abortion is one of the safest uh, medical procedures out there. It's safer than liposuction, for example. Mm. Um, all of these things really add up. And I think that we also don't talk about how Tennessee is a really big state. So right now you have just a few hubs of access. You have Memphis, you have Nashville, you have Knoxville. I think there's one place in Bristol and then another in Mount Juliet. Um, and both of those are, are sort of narrower points of access. But, you know, rural folks really have to struggle to get care. So they have to leave their homes. They have to navigate an unfamiliar city, which can be really overwhelming. Speaking as a rural person who used to like go to a city and be like, what is all of this? Mm -hmm. um, then they have to stay in the city or they have to drive back and forth over a few days. Um, they have to worry about childcare. Most folks who get abortion care are already parents. Uh, they have to get time off work. Uh, a lot of people don't have paid time off work. Um, it just all of these things add up. And I, I think we really don't talk enough about what it looks like for rural people who need abortion care to get it in a state where things are so spread out. So essentially, like, depending on where you live, you could be living in a place where it's already a de facto ban on abortions because of these limited resources. Absolutely. So I understand you are already working on a book. I am. Called No Choice, The Past, Present, and Perilous Future of Abortion in America. And really, timing seems right, almost perfect. How'd you get started on that? <laughs> uh, I wrote a cover story for Mother Jones where I followed a young woman who was trying to get abortion access from Mississippi. Uh, she went to Little Rock, Arkansas with the help of the abortion fund down there, Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund. Um, and I really just wanted to tell her story. It's one of those stories that I put a lot of time into. I built up a relationship with the fund director over a year. I'm still in pretty close contact with her. Um, I think for stories like that, it's really important to build trust and build respect. Um, so that that piece was really sort of grounded in that. Um, and it was really narrative. It caught the eye of an editor at Hachette. And uh, next thing I know of a book deal, and then there's a pandemic, and now we're here. So it's been <laughs> kind of a whirlwind. So how has... The reproductive justice beat during your time, has it changed? Mm. You know, I think overall, not so much. I mean, there's always been this churn of restriction, and I think there's also been this constant, um, like, begging people to pay attention in some ways. And by people, I mostly mean, like, men mm. <laughs> or, like, well-off women who— um, sort of take their rights for granted. So, you know, I think we're sort of on the precipice of, of things really changing now and that people are really understanding that, oh, my God, like this is a big deal. Our constitutional rights are ending. Um, so 
you know, we'll kind of see what that looks like. But for me, it's always been kind of the same, you know, like in my reporting, I really prioritize uh, the folks who haven't been able to access care traditionally. Um, so that's that's not going to change, unfortunately. That is Becca Andrews, writer for Mother Jones and author of the forthcoming book, No Choice, The Past, Present and Perilous Future of Abortion in America. Becca, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll invite a panel of women to share their personal experiences with abortion. Do you have questions about abortion rights or access? Do you want to share a personal story? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colona, and this is Nashville. Last week, hundreds gathered in front of the federal courthouse downtown to protest in support of abortion rights after the Supreme Court draft was leaked. There were speakers, including Ray Carl. I need to see us united. I need to see us holding hands together. I need to see us marching together. I need to see us in in corporation together. Why? Because I need my sisters. My sisters, 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 my sisters. The crowd's chant had one clear theme. It's my body, it's my choice, it's my body, it's my choice. On today's episode of a special series we're calling Citizen Nashville, we're talking about abortion access and learning how the current laws impacts our communities here in Tennessee. Since the draft opinion dropped last week, many have come forward to share their own experiences with abortion with the public. My next guest is one. I'd like to welcome Sarah to This Is Nashville. Now, she has requested that we not use her real name to protect her personal and professional privacy. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can Tell me about your experience. I understand it's pretty recent. Uh, yeah. Um, so my experience was actually, um, I, um, I actually found out I was pregnant on uh, International Women's Day, very um, on brand, um, and never been in this situation um, before, obviously, like, very emotional, shocking, et cetera, and um, trying to figure it out. So the first thing, you know, that I did was I was like, I'm going to reach out to, you know, Planned Parenthood. You know, at first I was like, okay, I just have to call and make an appointment. So long story short, it is not that simple. Um, I called all of the clinics in Tennessee um, and the average wait time to even be seen was two and a half weeks. Hmm. Keep in mind at this point, I didn't know how pregnant I was. And also you have to wait. That's just the initial consult. Then you have to wait 48 hours to even schedule a procedure. The more pregnant you are, the higher the cost goes up. And unfortunately, for many of us in this situation, cost is something that, you know, is on your mind. And so I sat with a friend called Every Clinic, got on the wait list for all of them. But it also said, like, I don't really have time or the money to wait, Um, you know, because if you're over a certain amount of time, then they just won't do it here. 
Um, so with that, um, trusty old Google, what's the easy, where's the easiest place to get an abortion? Um, and I found out DC, Washington, DC was one really interesting. Cause when I talked to all the Planned Parenthood clinics in Tennessee, not only was the wait time, you know, two and a half weeks for all these clinics, but they also told me Tennessee has COVID precautions, meaning I wasn't going to be able to take a friend or a, you know, a family member to go with me. Obviously this is a very emotional thing. Mm -hmm. And they said the reason why was because that Tennessee has COVID precautions. So they won't let you in a clinic. This is not a Planned Parenthood thing. This is a Tennessee thing. Because when I went to DC, DC says, as long as the person is vaccinated, you're more than welcome to have a person come with you. Um, you know, keep in mind, they also told me in Tennessee, I said, well, I can't obviously drive myself after this. So what am I supposed to do if I can't have, like, is my friend supposed to wait in the car for like four or five hours? And they're like, well, you can get an Uber. And like, I'm sorry, but getting an Uber after <laughs> an abortion, is just not something anybody should have to do. Um, so, you know, also we know that Tennessee doesn't care about COVID. We're one of the few, I think one of the only states who didn't have a statewide mask mandate, but they're doing this now to punish women, um, for this. The other interesting thing that I learned through my experience was that the cost was dramatically different. Well, I was quoted in Tennessee when I said, okay, if I'm, you know, this far along, you know, how much would how much would it cost? The cost was $300 more at a Planned Parenthood in Tennessee than a Planned Parenthood in DC for the same, you know, amount of gestational period. And so I was like, why is it different? You know, I like asked, I ended up having to, you know, go out of state and they said, you know, due to state laws and they do so many things to prevent it. There's so many barriers and red tape in Tennessee that it, of course, then the cost gets passed on to, um, the woman. And I think the thing I want people to know is I've heard so many people say, oh man, if this gets overturned or when this happens, like it's going to be impossible. It already is impossible. I had to travel to Washington DC last month, take time off work to do that because it was, the, it was going to be the best way. It was going to be the most affordable way. It was going to be the fastest way that I could get one. So for all these people who are saying that like, oh, it's going to get so bad. It already is. We're already there. I can hear that this has been really hard on you and for you. And um, I just want to say thank you for coming on and having the courage to share your story with us. My next guest is Tia Freeman. She too has personal experience. She's also a volunteer at Be with Beyond Row Collective, which is a reproductive justice advocacy group. Tia, welcome to This is Nashville. Tia, let me ask you, would you like to share your own experiences as well? Um, yeah, I'd love to. Um, so my abortion story is I have had two. I had my first one when I was 20 years old. Um, and that was a pretty easy choice for me. I understand that it can be difficult, um, for a lot of people, but I was fortunate in that I didn't grow up in a super religious household that was anti-abortion or grew up in an environment that that was frowned upon, um, where I found the most difficulty was the after decisions that, that came next. So I knew what it is that I wanted to do. I had no regret. I had no ill will or discomfort in my feelings, but what I found was it wasn't as easy as just going into a clinic. Um, 
I had to find a spot and I went to the Planned Parenthood and they couldn't see me for two weeks, which pushed me to my next gestational period, which increased my cost. But also in the state of Tennessee, there was a 48 hour waiting period. And so it was difficult enough to get my first appointment, which was just to come in, take a pregnancy test and to confirm that I was pregnant, which is something that I had already done. Um, But it was I had to schedule another appointment, which was even more difficult because everything is so backed up. There are a lot of people trying to get care and not all the people who are trying to get care are local. They have to come from all different kinds of places. And our infrastructure sometimes has a difficult time sustaining that. Um, and then when I did arrive, there were protesters outside. Um, they were trying to convince me to adopt. They were trying to convince me what I was doing was murder. They were trying to convince me and push all these really harsh and negative stigmas. Um, and I guess I just hadn't prepared for that. I hadn't really been a part of the reproductive justice space at that time. And, that experience really kind of changed things for me. And it was the thing that motivated me to get more into the field. And then I had my second one when last year during the pandemic. And this time I thought, okay, of course, I know what to experience by this point. I know what I should be feeling. Um, But there were some pandemic stipulations that also changed it, like not having anyone be able to come with you. And it is a very long process and it can be isolating. You, You have to imagine like you're pulling into a parking lot and people are yelling at you, right? You're talking to someone at the front office who is nice, but obviously they have other things to do. And then you're just sitting in a clinic waiting and waiting and waiting until it's your turn. And I was able to lean on some of the other people that was also there waiting along with me. Um, And it just, being able to talk to some of the other patients and hear their reasons and why we were all here. You had someone who was pursuing their masters and was already in an exorbitant amount of debt and hadn't even secured a, a stable job. They weren't in a position to birth a child. I had had a child at that point. I had had a two-year-old at the time. And I was like, I'm not in a position emotionally or financially to have another one. There were people there who had multiple children. They were they had four children already and couldn't sustain a fifth child. There are people who just never wanted to be parents. And that was very validating to be in an experience where there were so many different reasons for people's abortions journeys and being able to talk to them kind of made you forget about the people that you could still hear yelling through the window. Mm. Right. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned this, that your experiences inspired you to become more active in the advocacy space. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So not only have I had, um, abortion myself, but like every member of my family, uh, the, the women in my family have had hysterectomies and my mom had had an issue or a complication with her hysterectomy. And I just kept realizing that the people around me, both in my family, myself personally, and my community, we were struggling with these very tough decisions. And not only were we struggling with it from a societal and a cultural perspective, but we were also struggling from a governmental perspective. And so we were having to fight on all fronts. And I was a volunteer with Planned Parenthood for a couple of years. And I think Planned Parenthood does some really great work within the reproductive rights space. Um, But myself, along with a couple of the people that are in the Beyond Road Collective, we just felt that we could be doing a lot of community engagement um, and a lot of like the direct impact was lacking 
in a lot of the reproductive justice spaces here in Nashville. Um, so we had a self-managed abortion training last month where we just went over what the World Health Organization um, defines as a self-managed abortion, what the medications are, what's the difference, how do you take them, what are your health risks? And we put that on for members of the community just so that they could be aware of the things that are going on. Um, I also have friends who are non-binary and opening up the world to the fact that abortion isn't just a woman's issue. It's a non-binary, a trans, a gender non-conforming issue. And also when we talk about abortion as solely a woman's issue, we forget about all the other people that it touches. And like I said, I have a son or, and he is capable of leading the life that he enjoys because of my abortion decisions. Um, he can go to the zoo and we can drive down to Chattanooga and visit the aquarium and he can you know, participate in all these things he's thoroughly interested in because I can afford to take him. And not only can I afford to take him, I have the mental and emotional bandwidth to be actively participating in his life. And that is through direct result of my decision. And so it's not just a thing that we have to think about from the perspective of those with wounds, but also from outside of it. And that's really what the collective is about, is really embodying the framework of reproductive justice, right? Your ability to have children, to not have children, and then to parent the children that you have in sustainable and healthy ways, you know? So that's what we're are, we're trying to do as a collective is really get out into community and meet the needs that each of our communities has. Mm -hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Citizen Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. It's a special hour dedicated to better understanding abortion rights and access in our state. My next guest actually worked for Planned Parenthood before the court ruled that the Constitution protects a person's liberty to choose an abortion. Carol Caprio, thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. C Carol, can you tell us what the environment was like for people seeking abortion access back then? Okay, I, I am presently an 80-year-old woman, so I've seen a lot of this uh, in my lifetime, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, when I started at Planned Parenthood, it was just after the uh, abortion uh, became available. And at that time, the access was, was uh, readily available. I worked in New York State at the time that a woman could come in for a pregnancy test. We counseled women about all their choices, uh, including adoption, and women were able to uh, get in touch with the clinic. The clinic I worked at was not providing abortions, but they, there were enough available that they could make contact with a facility and be seen within several days. There was never a long wait. It was a... a you go in that morning, you get retested, you have the procedure done, and you return home. So it was a great relief to many women knowing that they were safe. Um, my generation, at that point I was in my 30s, but I was aware of, of women who had had self-induced abortions, ended up in the hospital. Um, I am also an adoptive parent, and my children were... Uh, were products of unplanned pregnancies. Uh, one of one of my children's birth mothers, who we had contact later in life, had approached someone and tried to get an illegal uh, back 
alley abortion. She got the money together. She went there. She was uh, accosted. Her money was stolen, and she was raped. So she went home and then ended up having the baby, which she later surrendered for adoption. The, uh, the second child I have, her birth, uh, her birth mother went to an unwed mother's home. Her family did not want her in the community or home with her, the rest of their siblings. And she remained there until she gave birth um, and then was told not to see her child, which she did go down the hall to see the child, and was and the child was surrendered for adoption. Um, so these were women who had no choices and felt they had no other choice but to, to give up for adoption because there was no family support, there was no community support, and there is still no support for young women, as far as I can see, who carry through a pregnancy don't surrender and try to raise children on their own. Uh, there is not health advantage for pregnancy. There is not uh, health for newborn. There is not child care. There is there's a pro-life movement, but not pro-life for living children. Mm-hmm. And that's very discouraging to see. Carol, from, from listening to what Sarah and Tia have shared, does... You know, what's your reaction to that? Well, it's I haven't had access to young women uh, more recently who have had to go through the ordeal of abortion, and I had no idea that it was so so overwhelming because at the time that I was working at Planned Parenthood, it was something that was easily accessible and supportable, and um, and I knew that things were bad in Tennessee. One of the things that I find really stressful is when they talk about this heartbeat law. Uh, the heartbeat is not a heartbeat that you hear at the at those early times of pregnancy. It's an electrical impulse that's read by a sonogram. A heartbeat is when the valves open and close. That's what causes your heartbeat when your doctor is listening to your heart. There is no heart. There are no valves in an eight-week-old embryo. Um, so the, the misinformation that people are listening to that are scaring them to, uh, not evaluate what their options really are. Carol, let me ask you this. We've got about 30 seconds left, but you've seen so much through change throughout the course of your life. What's your hope for the future of reproductive rights in our country? My hope is that women will wake up and be aware and as, as I heard earlier today, voting is our biggest powerful tool in this country. I have a friend who is also 80 who recounted to me yesterday the uh, abortions that she, the self-induced abortions that she encountered when she was working in Philadelphia Hospital. She's been a lifelong Republican, and she said to me, for the first time in my life, I'm going to vote Democrat. That is Carol Caprio. She was joined by Tia Freeman of the Beyond Row Collective. And Sarah, thanks to you all for joining us today and sharing your stories. We're taking a quick break. When we come back, we'll answer your questions about abortion, abortion access and reproductive rights with a panel of experts. You still have time to tweet us those questions at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back.
I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Citizen Nashville. On today's special episode, we're breaking down abortion rights and access in Tennessee. For 50 years, a person's right to choose an abortion has been protected under federal law. If the Supreme Court's draft opinion becomes final, abortion will become illegal at the federal level. The news has prompted a lot of questions, and we've been collecting your questions at thisisnashville.org, and it's still not too late to reach out. To answer your questions, I'd like to introduce Dr. Ivana Thompson, a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist at the Vanderbilt Center for Women's Health, and Robin Baldridge, president of the Abortion Care for Tennessee. Thank to you. Thanks to you both for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So since the news broke last week, there's been a lot of confusion around the current legality of abortion in Tennessee. You know, which procedures and medications are legal right now and which ones are not? Robin, can to answer that for us? Abortion is still legal in Tennessee, Abor- any, every form of abortion. What about medications that are legal right now? For, for a medication abortion? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. All legal. It, is not, it is not legal to, to get them delivered by mail, which has been a big thing that has been trending over the past week about Bill Lee signing additional restrictions, but it was already not legal to receive them by mail. But if you are going to one of the clinics in the state, then it is legal to access a medication abortion and an in-clinic procedure. Okay. Now, is it true that laws around abortion pills were tightened this year in our state. Dr. Thompson, what are what do people listening need to know about access to, as opposed to surgical abortions? Okay, so you're absolutely right that the laws have tightened here in Tennessee, um, but just as Robin said, abortion is illegal and is legal in Tennessee. Um, when thinking about a medication abortion, it's a med- it's a a medication abortion is when people use medications that basically trigger a miscarriage-like process. Um, a surgical abortion is really a procedure to remove pregnancy tissue from the uterus. Both are extremely safe procedures, and I feel that patients, um, it's a very individual decision with patients to decide like, what is going to be best for them. Let's take a listen to this question we got at thisisnashville.org. Hi. This is Joyce from New York. How many do support Roe v. Wade in Tennessee, a woman's right to choose, and women's reproductive health? Robin, do you have a good sense of how many people support Roe v. Wade in our state? Oh, I know that, um, not specific to to Tennessee, I do not, but I do know that statistically, overwhelmingly in each state, it's like something about like, like on average, 22% of people agree with overturning Roe v. Wade. Um, And that's not just specific to states that already have increased access. That is in in also the trigger states where um, the majority of citizens do not agree with overturning Roe v. Wade. So a majority of them don't agree with overturning it, but as far as like, could we imagine that the opposite number, 80 some percent, 78 percent are folks that support it actually here in the state? Yeah, I would say so. I would say support it or don't have a necessarily a conviction in the other direction. Okay. So the bottom line is abortion is illegal in Tennessee right now. What are some places? It is legal. Is, is legal. Mm-hmm. Pardon me. Sorry. In, in where are some places that you can currently get abortion in our state, Robin? 
So um, as Becca previously mentioned, there are like three hubs right now. Um, One is Memphis, where there are two clinics. One is Choices in Memphis, which is an independent clinic, and then also the Planned Parenthood in Memphis. Um, And then in Nashville, um, the Planned Parenthood here, they kind of go back and forth as far as offering services. Um, There is uh, also Mount Juliet, which is in, there's Carafem in Mount Juliet. And then there's also one clinic left in Knoxville, which is the Knoxville Center for reproductive health. We've been compiling a list and we will share it at thisisnashville.org today after the show. Here's another voice message we got from a father who has asked that we not use his name. During our first pregnancy, testing showed that our son had trisomy 13 and that he wouldn't survive outside the womb. So we had to choose between holding him in our arms as he died a painful death or putting him to rest inside the womb. Choosing to terminate the pregnancy was the hardest decision that we have ever made. And others might have chosen differently, and we support their decisions too. But this was the right decision for our family. So as a father who's been through this, let me just say that laws that restrict access to abortion make impossible situations like ours harder and more painful by an order of magnitude. Our insurance wouldn't cover the abortion. The cost to have this procedure done at an HCA hospital was over $5,000, which we didn't have at the time. None of the more affordable clinics in Tennessee could perform the procedure in a timely manner due to service disruptions that were caused by Republicans. And so we had to drive hours away to an out-of-state clinic, past billboards that implied we were murdering our son, and protesters holding signs that naively offered help in order to give peace to our son. And had this happened today in Texas, I could be sued by our nurse for driving her to the clinic. We're grateful for this listener's willingness to share his family's story. There are two questions this raises. One is about the limitations of clinics that currently operate in Tennessee due to service disruptions. Robin, what are those disruptions? Disruptions, um, like on a on a legal level, or are we talking like within the clinic? Within the clinic, the disruptions that he was mentioning that Republicans have set up. Oh, I mean, um, as Becca touched on, there's so many different what we call trap laws. Um, so first is the 48 hour waiting period. Tennessee has a 48 hour waiting period, which means you're going to have to come in for multiple appointments, um, and they do that apparently because they want to give patients accessing abortions more time to think about it, Mm. when really all of that does is create, it's essentially double the cost, not for the actual procedure, but for all of the associated costs. So childcare, time off work, it's it's doubling all of those costs, the additional costs. Um, There might be additional medications. Those are often not covered. Many patients are uninsured. So if there's additional medications that they need, it's really hard for them to just go and pick it up at the pharmacy. There's, I mean, there's a lot of new things happening in Tennessee, especially around um, who can do certain parts of the the appointments. Um, I also identify as someone had, has had an abortion. I had an abortion last May, and I also worked in clinic prior to that. And one big thing that I noticed when I had my own abortion was that the actual doctor and provider had to do my ultrasound, which is something when I worked in clinic, um, 
healthcare assistants, nurses, they could all be trained on doing the ultrasound, just a quick gestational dating ultrasound. Now a provider has to do that. So they're essentially taking the providers who need to be spending time actually providing the abortions. Their schedule is now like triple stacked, also having to do a really simple, a simple, you know, medical service that can be offered by multiple people on the staff. Um, So that is, that's a adding to all of the the wait times, the three-week wait periods that you're hearing, it's because they're basically stacking responsibilities on the provider when they could very easily be delegated to other staff members who are more than qualified to do them. So that's a good example. What's the difference between a crisis pregnancy center and an abortion clinic? A crisis pregnancy center, uh, a lot of them operate differently, but across the board, they are essentially trying to dissuade a patient from accessing an abortion. Um, There's a spectrum. Some of them offer, uh, some of them operate under what I consider to be corrupt and illegal circumstances where they're literally doing fake ultrasounds, like giving a woman a dated ultrasound saying she's 20 weeks pregnant and her fetus has this, this, and this when, Mm. you know, they, the patient is only maybe five weeks pregnant, something like that. Um, the Hope Clinic is an example here in Nashville. Um, they essentially will, they say that they are going to support whatever a patient comes in needing, but then they're going to definitely steer them towards adoption options, other things. It's a lot of, it's, it's not an abortion clinic. That's the big thing that everyone wants to know. Everyone needs to know is that it is not a clinic where you can access any type of abortion services. There was a tweet from a Florida congresswoman that went viral over the weekend claiming that Tennessee had banned the emergency contraceptive Plan B. Fact check, that is not true. Our reporter Blaze Ganey has a story on that at WPLN.org. But Dr. Thompson, first, what is the difference between Plan B and an abortion pill? That's a great question. So medication abortion consists of two medications. The first is mifepristone, which is commonly referred to as the abortion pill. And mifepristone stops the pregnancy from growing. The second medication is called mesoprostol. And what mesoprostol does is it has the cervix open, it causes the uterus to cramp, and this causes the person to expel the pregnancy tissue. Now, when we talk about plan B or emergency contraception, this is also referred to as the morning after pill. This is a medication that someone would take after an episode of unprotected or underprotected intercourse to reduce their risk of pregnancy. It does this by delaying when a woman releases an egg or ovulates. So they are very different medications. And it's important to know that when people take plan B, if they have an established pregnancy within the uterus, it does not interrupt that pregnancy and it also does not harm that pregnancy. So there are two very different medications. A few listeners asked us about what will happen when there are complications for the fetus. Dr. Thompson, what are some of the medical responses for a parent having to carry a pregnancy, medical consequences, sorry, for the parent having to carry a pregnancy to term when the fetus has a fatal abnormality and not really inducing a medical abortion when the fetus grows, stops growing or loses a heartbeat? Okay, that's another excellent question. So in the situation where the pregnancy has passed, but the, where the pregnancy has stopped growing, but the, remains inside the uterus, um, if the 
person can, if the person is not allowed to access um, medication to pass the pregnancy or allowed to have a procedure to remove the pregnancy tissue, they're at a risk for having heavy, heavy bleeding called a hemorrhage. They're at a risk for having infection. And this can be very unpredictable. We can't, we can't uh, determine when someone will spontaneously pass um, a pregnancy in this situation. And when we think about pregnancies where the fetus has a lethal anomaly, um, pregnancy itself is a risky condition. And so when people continue these pregnancies, they run the risk that other pregnant folks um, risk, such as developing high blood pressure issues like preeclampsia or diabetes, developing a blood clot or having heart conditions that develop as a consequence of just being pregnant. And then I think um, for folks who are continuing a pregnancy with a non-viable um, pregnancy, you have to consider the emotional toll that that takes. And I think that your caller who left that voice message really, um, really voiced what that can be for folks. And, and outside of the um, experiences that he voiced, some pregnant people um, will have, will be asked about their pregnancies by others, or some people will touch their bellies. And for folks who have the situation where the baby inside has a, has a uh, lethal anomaly, that can be really distressing. Abortion versus miscarriage. How can you tell the difference? Okay. So an abortion is when a pregnancy is ended so that it doesn't result in the life, uh, life birth of a child. And abortion is where you use medicine or surgery to remove that pregnancy from the uterus. A miscarriage is when the pregnancy stops growing. And typically when the pregnancy stops growing, the cervix opens, the uterus cramps, and that will expel the pregnancy tissue. Um, it would be difficult, if not impossible, to differentiate between patients who are experiencing miscarriage versus patients who are experiencing abortion, because both of them would be experiencing bleeding and cramping. And so for someone who would present to their provider in either clinical situation, would not be able to tell. So we Outside got, of the patient saying. Okay. We got this question from a listener who answered our prompt on thisisnashville.org. They ask, what does the trigger pan in, ban in Tennessee mean for women who are trying to conceive and might need abortive care for a failed pregnancy? Does the mother still have to be in danger of death to qualify? Robin? Yes. Yeah. All right. The, and the, there's a lot of tricky language around like how they would prove that. So it's it's very complicated. I think it's really important to center in this conversation that many, many patients that are trying to get pregnant and have wanted pregnancies are going to be affected by Roe v. Wade being overturned. Specifically, especially one thing that should be uplifted is the IVF conversation because IVF can definitely lead, has there's statistics that show that it can lead to pregnancies outside of the uterus, and there's no exception for pregnancies outside of the uterus um, to access safe and legal abortion. IVF, you mean in vitro fertilization? Yeah, which it's a, it, it can be a, a very awful side effect of it not implanting correctly. Um, so it just it's just to uplift that anyone who is doing anything related to pregnancy is going to be affected by this. Mariana Eddy left us a message at thisisnashville.org. She identifies herself as both pro-choice and pro-life. Here's her question. Hi, Khalil and staff for This Is Nashville. 
I want to thank you all first for your show format and for the open discussions here. Can a human being that's living inside a woman's body that has personal genetic makeup unique to them, contributed by both parents, really be considered only a part of the mother's body? So when do the rights of this child or person begin? So is abortion and choice, abortion and choice, really about a woman's right to choose health for herself over that of her baby or over that of the father? I don't, I mean, I don't think there's a clear answer to Mariana's question, but it's a point that a lot of people grapple with from all sides of this issue. According to Tennessee, the law as it stands right now, legally, when do the rights of the child begin? Robin. When, according to Tennessee, when do they begin? Yeah. Uh, immediately. I think that all of the heartbeat ban stuff is having to do with like as soon as there is a a detection of a heartbeat that that is when it began. But I think that's what it is legally. But I know like on a cultural level, which I think is really important to send here is that it's at conception. Okay. There is a new abortion poll from the Generation Lab that says over half of young women ages 18 to 29 say they'd get an abortion if they had an unwanted or unplanned pregnancy, even if it were illegal. Robin, what does that signal to you? It, it signals what what we all know or should know is that this is not this is only going to outlaw safe abortion it is not going to outlaw abortion at all um, abortion is not going anywhere um, in in the abortion advocacy space one of the things that we always say is that we're doing ancient work and it's it's been here from the beginning of time in different forms and we're very fortunate to be living in a time where we can you know do it safely if we have the access um, and that is, that's what will be stripped and removed is safe abortion That is Robin Baldridge, president of Abortion Care for Tennessee. She was joined by Dr. Ivana Thompson and OBGYN at Vanderbilt Center for Women's Health. Thanks to you both for joining us today and answering these questions. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Brianna Perry, Blake Farmer, and Paige Flager. Conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want to hear from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.